From high atop Fibush Media World News Headquarters in Rochester, New York, it's the Top of the Tower podcast. The Top of the Tower podcast is brought to you by Shively Labs. Shively Labs is a division of Howell Laboratories. Shively is a proud employee-owned company with over 50 years of expert antenna and filter design and manufacturing. And by Yellowtech. For broadcasters, podcasters, and content creators, Yellowtech offers solutions for clean, efficient studios with the Mika mic arms and monitor supports. Clear audio from Yellowtech's IXM recording microphone and USB sound cards, along with its compact mixer, the Intellimix. To learn more, go to yellowtech.com. I'm Scott Feibush. We are uh, back with at least one episode this month of the Top of the Tower podcast. Things have been getting kind of busy around here, and uh, we'll be talking more about that as we get into December and get working on our Northeast Radio Watch year in review and uh, getting the new Tower site calendar out to you and all of that good stuff. But there is an interview that, uh, frankly, I've been sitting on a little bit too long to bring to you with uh, one of the most interesting people in the broadcast business right here in Rochester, New York. Uh, my good friend Steve Hausman retired recently after a long career with WBEE here in Rochester. And uh, before that, he did TV sports for a while. As you'll hear, he was a game show host at one point, uh, did radio news, had worked in Boston. If you ever listened to the old WCOZ or WHDH in Boston, you heard Steve there. But uh, let's let him tell his story. I sat down with him not long ago at uh, one of our favorite breakfast spots here in Rochester for a wide-ranging discussion about the career of Steve Hausman. Steve Hausman, welcome back to being in front of a microphone. It's been it's been how long now since you uh, retired from WBEE? I know. Uh, the, my last day was August 30th, and it was funny because, you know, I, facing the reality of... Uh, not having anything to do. The first thing Julie and I did was the next day we got away for a few days. And when I came back, it kind of felt like I was on vacation. A couple of weeks, you know. Uh, but now we're six weeks in, and uh, the reality has set in that this is this is it, man. It's a, it's a pressure-free life from now on. Waking up at 8.30 or later? Yeah, I was almost late for this gig today. Uh, you know, at, at first... And you've done morning, so you understand. You know, you try to get four hours every night. And I used to tell people jokingly I would sleep twice a day from 12 to 4. I was struggling because I would wake up four hours into whatever sleep I was having. And uh, so I'd be getting up like at maybe 5.30 or 6 o'clock and I can't sleep. And I'd take a nap in the afternoon. But now I've gotten into a pretty good routine where I can sleep uh, eight or nine hours a night. It's, uh, it's awesome. I still remember the uh, the late Gary LaPierre, of course, was the morning man on WBZ Forever, who you grew up listening to, I'm sure, in Boston. And after he retired from BZ, I was talking to him, and I said, uh, do you miss getting up in the morning at all? And he said, no, nope, no, not at all. Never. It never. You know I mean? When you do the, the, the hours that you and I have done, you never get caught up with your sleep. You're never caught up. You're always trying to catch an hour here and there, even on weekends. You get into a routine that you just can't shake. Gary was great, man. He was a, he and Gil Santos back in those days, sure. You know, I worked at the competition at WHDH Radio, and I was a part-time board op for the great Jess Kane. So, I mean, th those were the great old days of radio. And, and you know, and, and I mean, I still love radio. I know you do. I still am passionate for it. I'm just glad I don't have to get up in the morning anymore. So, quick Gary and Gil story before we rewind to Boston here. I remember when I started doing mornings at BZ, and I was writing for Gary, and one morning I dragged myself in at 3.30 or 4, and 
looked at Gary and Gil as, as they were coming in, and I said, so how long did it take you guys to get used to this? And Gary looked at Gil. Gil looks at Gary. They both kind of start laughing, and, and Gary says, yeah, never do. Never. You never do. No, every morning is. And, and, you know, and I never complained about it because I loved what I was doing, and I always knew that there were plenty of people who were getting up at the same hour probably making less money and doing way more important things than what I was doing. So I kept it in that perspective. My wife, Julie, will tell you that I never got up at 3.15 and said, oh, God, i got to do this again. Never really complained. And once I got out of the house, once I got on the road and got into the station, the clock wasn't an issue. Just plow forward. But you said it right. You said you'd drag yourself out of bed because that's what you do. Yeah. All right. So get back to the beginning here. What This is the question I always love asking people who are passionate about this business. What got you bit in the beginning? Well, and I don't want to, well, I'm 70 years old, so it's going to go way back. When I was a kid in the 50s, uh, I was a fan of the great Steve Allen, one of the original hosts of The Tonight Show, a uh, very funny, multi-talented musician, comic, TV host. I thought he was just the greatest. And my dad would, uh, my dad and mom would often let me get up and watch some of his show. And that I would have the coffee table in the living room, and I'd pretend that was my desk. You know, almost like the Seinfeld episode, you know, with uh, Merv, uh, Merv Griffin. And I would just, my dad made me like a little wooden microphone. And I'm eight or nine years old. I love that. But my main passion was I always wanted to be, as a born and raised Bostonian, uh, the Red Sox announcer. I wanted to be that guy. I wanted to be Kurt Gowdy. To the point where, back in those days, the broadcast used to sponsor a uh, Be the Red Sox announcer for an inning contest. And here I am, an eight-year-old kid, entering a contest, figuring, well, why why can't I win it? You know? I mean, I knew I never would. They're not going to give it to an eight-year-old kid. But I wanted to do that. Uh, I never really thought about the star aspect of it. I just wanted to be on the radio. I liked what people did. I was in high school. I used to emulate the great Bruce Bradley, who was another guy from WBZ Radio. I thought he was the greatest. And I just wanted to be the guy on the radio. I used to go down. They used to do uh, broadcasts at the local amusement park every summer. And I was about eight or nine miles from there. But I'd ride my bike down there just to watch them in that trailer broadcasting. And that's what I want to do. I got a chance when I was 18 at a little station in Quincy, Massachusetts, right outside Boston. I had flunked out of community college. And... uh, my high school guidance counselor said, you know, you want to get into radio, why don't you go up there into the booth, because they would do our high school games on Sundays, and find out what you can do. So I went up there and I asked the announcer, I said, hey, you know, I want to get into radio. He said, well, why don't you do statistics for us? You know, this running back is running for so many yards, that sort of thing. So I did that for one fall, and at the end of the season, the guy dutifully said, hey, if there's anything I ever do, get in touch with me. Uh, and I had flunked out of community college, so I called him. And he said, we have a gig. It was an engineering gig. I don't know. I could barely plug in, you know, the, a lamp. But I said, uh, okay. So at the age of 18, at WJDA in Quincy, Massachusetts, I had Jim Asher, Jim Asher the Jim dad. Asher. Yeah. And then Jada. Uh, I had a gig. And it was just the greatest thing. I was on top of the world. $2 an hour. And it's stations like that that, by and large, don't exist anymore. I mean, WJDA is still on the air, but it's, it's broadcasting least time programming. There's, they're not doing anything local for the South Shore. But I would do, like, Lost Cats and Lost Dogs, uh, 
we had the show What's New in Pink and Blue, where they announced the births. Now, and you can't even do that legally anymore because of, uh, you know, rules and laws. But we would do it all, yeah. It was, it was, it was great fun. And, you know, and I had nothing to compare it to. Uh, it was my first job, and I just thought it was just the greatest thing in the world. And you were really, I mean, you were in a great market at a great time to be getting into radio in, in Boston in that era. And, you know, and that kind of came back to haunt me a little bit because, again, I had no comparison, no idea what it's like to be in the trenches uh, to work in, like, Elmira or some small town other than my little town of Quincy, Mass. So I ended up in Boston uh, through a friend of mine at Emerson College who said, you know, this big station in Boston, WHDH, hires uh, what they call board ops, guys to run the equipment for the announcers who aren't allowed to touch the equipment because the union things. And they hire Emerson College students, and I was a student at Emerson. So let me see if I get you a summer gig. And I got that, and now I'm in the big time doing overnight board hopping. But, you know, I thought, well, this is good. was able to take career steps there. We added an FM, the old great WCOZ. Uh, so as a board hopper, I would work during the day, but I would jump in and do sports in the morning on COZ, and I would do a little feature in the afternoon. And in 1981, the guy who was running WCOZ, a guy named Dick Burrell, said to me, hey, uh, what if we make you full-time on the air on our FM? And that was my first foray into doing radio news. Hey, think about it. I mean, here you had a rock and roll station, and it wasn't the only one in town. You, you had the same thing going on over at, at BCN that had news departments, that had real serious news departments. And it was serious. You know, now, luckily, I was able to draw off the news department at the AM station, WHDH, with guys like Vid Maloney and Nick Young, some great, great Susan Warnick, people like that. Uh, so I was able to, uh, you know, learn... But the problem was that I thought that uh, I didn't know what it was like to struggle. You know, I was handed this silver platter, not even realizing it at the time. And something it hit me that I was not entitled when I had been doing some fill-in stuff on our AM station, fill-in sports in the morning. And they would lean on me when they needed someone in an emergency. So part of me thought that when... Uh, a guy named Dan Davis left that station to go to eventually ESPN. That I was entitled; I'd be the next in line. And when I didn't get it, I realized. I said, "Man, you've just been spinning your wheels. There's no entitlement." Uh, and and that may be my one regret. Is I, you know, I kind of, I won't say I wasted five or six years of my career, but I sat on it for a while without pursuing things, expecting that they would be handed to me. And you know, and 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 I. I you know, I, I kind of regret that. But looking back over 51 years in broadcasting, it's just a small glitch in the road. Because everything worked out great. Uh, you know, uh, in the flip side, you look at, you know, if you had ended up at a WHDH or at an RKO or at an EEI, you fast forward another 10 years after that, none of them were really doing what they, what they were doing in the mid-'80s. Right. And the great thing about coming here, and my wife points this out, if I had stayed in Boston, there might have been 50 people who were Steve Hausman who do what they do. I mean, out here, I was able to be unique and make a brand for myself and uh, do pretty much everything I ever wanted to do in my career, you know. I came out here in 1987. Uh, I had worked in Boston, believe it or not, with a guy named Scott Spazano. Scott was 19 years old, and this is a funny story. Uh, I would do, in addition to the morning stuff on the FM on Sunday... I would have to do a call-in talk show on a rock station 
from 6 till 9 on Sunday mornings. Who is listening to a rock station for a call-in talk show at 6 o'clock in the morning on Sunday? I'm, I'm not kidding. I would sit there and I would open up the Boston Sunday Globe, and I would basically read the Boston Sunday Globe on the air. i say, oh, look, there was a fire in Dorchester last night. Gosh, seeing if it would draw any interest. Anyway, after I'd do that call-in show, I would have to do an oldie show till noon. And Scott Spazano was my relief. At noon, he was supposed to come in and go on the rest of the day. And Scott would always be late because he had had a big night the night before. So Scott left Boston, came up, came back home, PXY. Uh, my station in Boston went through a whole ownership and management change, and everybody suddenly was out the door. And here I am, newlywed, child on the way, uh, just bought a new house, and... I'm jobless. Our competition back then on the FM side, in addition to BCN, was the station KISS 108. And I got a call from them one day. A guy named John Madison says, hey, we, we'll hire you. So I said, well, this is great. We're just going to move across the street. Uh, but he said, we have nothing in Rochester, but we have, a sta- we have nothing in Boston, but we have a station in Rochester, New York. Now, Scott, I had never lived anywhere but Boston. Went to college in Boston. I mean, I did a lot of traveling around, but I was Boston all the way. I was parking my car every day. And they said, well, we're going to fix you up with Scott Spazano. Scott and Diane. So Julie and I thought about it. I'd never moved in my life. We said, okay, let's go. So we pack up the car with a one-month-old child, and here we are in Rochester, New York. And like most people who come here from out of town, I thought maybe, you know, three years, we'll go back, back to the majors, spend three years down here in AAA, go back to uh, Boston, Three years become five, five become ten, ten become twenty, and uh, I've never left. Now, I realize in retrospect, and I didn't, I didn't think about this at the time, but I know now, I mean, you were doing a lot of different stuff when you came back here. You were on PXY. You were doing, what was it, Weekend Sports, I think, on Channel 10 at that point? My first TV gig was uh, a, a baseball show on uh, what is now Fox. It was... What was it the, back then? WUHF. Uh, I did a uh, did a feature piece in a baseball show called Red Wings Weekly with a producer named Lenny Hernandez. So that was my first TV thing. <clears throat> uh, yeah, I got I got hired at Channel Eight to do sports at first. Did it for a couple of years. JC DeLass was the anchor, and I would fill in do weekends. And then I got a chance to go to Channel Ten. Rich Funky uh, contacted me one day, and of course I wanted to try to do TV. Real good TV. So I did. I anchored weekends for, I don't know, 12 years or so. The problem with that was my poor wife, I mean, she's, bringing, she's bringing up our son. And I'm, you know, working five days a week in the radio, working weekends doing TV. I was never home. And, what, and I'm still trying to maintain, a, you know, an outside life, you know, having fun with the guys. So I was trying to plug four, three pe- uh, four pegs into three holes. And I realized one day that that's not going to work. So I passed on TV, dropped my TV gig, and probably saved my marriage. And you were doing another little bit of TV, too, that you knew I wasn't going to let you get off without talking about. Because this is, this is where we first had, ended up uh, unknowingly meeting each other. You were a game show host. My wife is, uh, now this is 1987 or 88, probably. My wife is reading through the Times Union. And in the classifieds, there's a little tiny ad. Game show host wanted... WXXI TV. And she looked at me and she said, you got to get that job. you got to go after that. Oh, I've never done anything. She said, <coughs> she called him up. 
So I called over there, did an audition for what ultimately was the show Brainstormers, which was a high school competition between two high schools, a, g- a general knowledge quiz show. And I went over there, auditioned, got the gig somehow, and came back home and told Julie. I said, I must have been the only one who, who auditioned for me. Yeah. So here I am now, a game show host, and you were one of the students one time. I was. My team from Brighton High School uh, came in as the runners-up in the 1987-88 year. Yeah, it was, it was a blast. I mean, again, I had no idea what I was doing. Just trying to have fun with it, trying to fight off my nerves, and just trying to look cool around these high school kids. And it was a great, great show. It was a lot of fun. Uh, to this day, I will bump into kids, grown, grown men and women now, who say, remember me? I'm not good at remembering anybody. I don't even remember you on the show, Scott, but they say, I was on Brainstormers. And, you know, that left an impression with these now very successful, smarter-than-me people. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Gosh, there was a kid on Greece Athena, and I know this is a story we've talked about before. Uh, Greece Athena was always a powerhouse. And um, there was a kid named Andy. And I'll never forget, this kid would, I'm not kidding, he would buzz in with an answer before he even asked the question. Remember one night, uh, one show, we taped it with Andy, and, and the answer was, uh, this inventor is known for hundreds of inventions, including inventing the lighted miner's helmet. <clears throat> Andy rings in, Ben Franklin. I said, how did you know that? And I remember I took the question, I'm wearing a, you know, a suit, I put the question in my top jacket pocket because I was going to a party that night. And I'm asked at the party, and I pull it out and said, all right, who knows the answer to this one? No one, but Andy pulled it out of nowhere. My my recollection competing with him is it would be more like, who is the... I know. He was buzzer heavy. Yes. (laughs) And we thought, I mean, as as a kid who was on the show, was, hey, here's this cool guy from the radio who's doing this. So you were already already known in town, I think, at that. Well, you know, and I didn't realize it. I'm just trying to make a buck or two for my young family. But I look back on that, and it's a perfect example about how Rochester, New York, has let me do everything I wanted to do in my career. You mentioned radio, of course, brainstormers, uh, doing TV. I was able to go to all four Super Bowls with Channel 10. Uh, But it also got me a chance to do what I said a little bit earlier. What I always wanted to do is baseball on the radio. Uh, I got to do Red Wings games for one season with Josh Lewin who we all know is a big-time uh, national uh, broadcaster now. So I got a chance to do baseball. And it was one of the years when the Red Wings uh, went to the Governor's Cup, and that was the thrill of a lifetime, being able to get on the radio and do baseball. That's all I ever wanted to do. Yeah. And i gotta, I got to brag on Josh a little bit because I went to high school with him at Brighton. He was a couple of years ahead of me. And here's somebody who you knew was going places, and he went on and eventually was the Mets announcer, of course, on radio for quite a few years and is now working uh, with your former company, with Entercom, in, in San Diego. Yes, and he uh, did a lot of uh, Red Sox games this year on a, on a rotating basis with other announcers. You know, it, it, I don't know if I would have been cut out for that big-time level of things being away all the time. I mean, I loved it, I loved it at the Rochester level. But I never really thought that, and, and my, my wife was great at that because she said, do you want to be away all the time? And she's just sitting there with, you know, with nothing going on. And I, I think it's probably just as well that I topped off at the level I was at. 
So you were, I mean, all through the 90s, you know, everybody in town was changing owners every couple of weeks and, and stations were moving from from cluster to cluster. You ended up settling in in probably about the most stable place you could be at what turned out to be the number one station for a long time in town. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, you're referring to Wham and uh, when I was t- with Tony and Dee on VOR. Uh, they had approached me about going to work over there, and I looked into it, and I took the gig. But then my uh, bosses at PXY hit me with, well, you have a non-compete clause. And it was a long, drawn-out court case that was pretty pretty public. I remember one day, uh, Carol Ritter, remember Carol Ritter? She was a writer for the paper, and she was uh, you know very popular around town, emceeing events, auctioneer. Carol Ritter did the story in the Democrat and Chronicle in which she printed my salary, which was probably more than what most people in Rochester were making. And there were some people at Wham who saw that and freaked out. This is a guy who can't even be on our air yet, and he's pulling down that kind of money? And I'll tell you, it was $50,000. That's a lot of money. And, uh, and so it, when my Wham! and VOR days kind of started, I had that news that, that albatross around my neck, you know, Mr. Big Time. Uh, but those are some great days. I mean, you know, that's, that's how I got to go to the Super Bowl with doing because Rich Funky had been doing sports on Wham! And they said, well, you know, we want you to do it instead. And, geez, I'm pushing Rich Funky out. And I'm with Tony and D, and they were great. That was a great time of my life. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, that's when I really kind of settled in. Yeah. Uh, we we got a chance to do a lot of fun things together. I still see Dee all the time. I bump into Tony now and then, but I still see Dee. She is just the most charming person. I know you know her. She's She'd be great for one of these, by the way. We should. We should get her on at yeah. some point. I don't, I don't want to make it all Rochester people because I could do that all year. <laughs> I know, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe I'll start one. <laughs> You'll be my first guest. All right. It's a deal. It's a deal. So then from there over to what eventually became the Centercom Cluster, and, uh, and WBEE, which I think now at this point, if you stop most people on the street in Rochester and say, where do you know Steve from, that's what they're going to say. Yeah, it was the longest gig I had in town. Uh, and when I went in there, when they asked, I'd been let go at, at uh, CMF and PXY. And, you know, that's another great thing. In my 50-year career, the most time I was out of work was those four months when I was uh, out of work from, after CMF and PXY. I got a call from them, and they said, hey, we're interested uh, why don't you, you know, wait out your non-compete time, you know, take all your severance, and then the day your severance ends, come on over. And I didn't know anything about country music. I gave myself a little crash course in it, and of course I did that wrong as I'm looking at all classic country songs. I'm not even thinking about this as like a top 40 station that plays country. I knew who Terry Clifford was, but I'd never met her, although she would, uh, she would tell stories about times we had met. Uh, I had seen Bill Coffey now and then because the B and Wham and uh, VOR were in Midtown. So I would see Bill Coffey. We'd often get in the elevator together from the garage and walk up and go our separate ways. And this is, and we've got to point out, for, for people who don't know the Rochester radio geography, at one point, both of the big clusters in town were in the same downtown shopping mall in two different buildings that were connected, or everybody showed up at the same food court and everything. Sure, every morning in the, you know, in the, sh- the shuttered mall, it was, it was really something. So I started at, VO, at, uh, at, at uh, the B, again, not knowing anything about country music, not really even being a fan. But you learn pretty quickly that when you get a radio job, you become a fan of that, of that genre. 
And, you know, we would, when I was at the other stations, the B always did great in the ratings. The country station would always beat everybody. But we would kind of sort of poo-poo it, saying, well, it's only a country station. But when I got over there and found out what a powerhouse it was, it was amazing. And I will say that of all those jobs I had, working with Terry Clifford, Bill Coffey, who, uh, the morning show host who passed away uh, while we were working there, uh, was, was the best part of my life. And it's because of the format. You know, I'd worked in every format, rock, uh, top 40, talk, everything. I found that the uh, artists were the most down-to-earth people you could ever believe. I, I, I liken them to hockey players. You know, the, a hockey player has his mindset where he's always got to push for the cause. He'll sign every autograph. They'll uh, kiss every baby, and they're just regular lunch pill kind of. Now, in country, there are some superstars who change the rules a little bit. But even people like Keith Urban, uh, Blake Shelton, are just down-to-earth regular people who are passionate about what they do and passionate about the people who like what they do. Uh, the country music listener is as loyal as you can imagine, and the artists are just... 95% of them are just normal people. It's great. It was great uh, being able to say, yeah, I met Carrie Underwood. Yeah. She, was, she was as normal as you could believe. Um, and my theory has always been that, you know, particularly here in this market, that WBE as the country station essentially became the, the moms and minivan full-service AC station, which was that hole that WVOR had been in the, in the 70s and early 80s, and it just slid right in there. You know, we were, we were bus drive. We were school bus safe. You know, the, the bus driver could turn on the B on the school bus and not have anyone saying, what do they mean by that? You know, there's never any double entendre, never, never anything that was not safe for kids to hear. And moms would tell me all the time that they loved the B because they could, it was safe. It was safe radio. I mean, we would go up to the line. We saw where the line was. We'd look over the line but never cross it. Yeah, and yeah, you're right about that. Let's talk about Bill Coffey a little, because that's got to be one of the hardest things with a morning show that is you know, essentially the number one morning show in town, and all of a sudden, one morning, you don't have the star of that show anymore. It was a very strange morning. Bill Coffey was a, was a legend on, on the B Morning Coffee Club. That's why it was called the Coffee Club. He would uh, do his part of the show from his home in Pennsylvania. He had a, a sick member of the family, and he wanted to. He was ready to quit. He said, is there any way I could do it from Pennsylvania? They let him do that. So he would do his portion uh, from his home in Pennsylvania, seamless on the air because it sounded like he was in the room. Anyway, uh, we had done a Buffalo Bills trip, the station we brought listeners down to Miami to see the Bills play the Dolphins on the weekend. And that Monday morning, he's on the air. I'm calling in from uh, Miami saying what a great game it was. His people you know, will be home tomorrow. Uh, we finish the show at 10 o'clock. We get on a plane with about 50 listeners, five or six staffers, and the plane has to make a stop in Charlotte. And in Charlotte, uh, our general manager was on the trip, Michael Doyle. He's on the phone, and he has this weird look at his face. And I'm about, I don't know, 20 feet from him, and he mouths the words. I can read his lips. Bill Coffey died. Now, here's the thing. It's awful. Bill Coffey's dead? Uh, he had had a heart attack right after he uh, got off the air. He was the kind of guy, first of all, who so energetic. He would not run up the stairs two at a time. He'd go three at a time. So he was an energetic guy. He was fit, thin, the last person on the world in the world that you think would have a 
fatal heart attack. So now here we are in Charlotte. Uh, my boss has to deal with that reality. I'm trying to not be emotional around these people who are still, you know, hung over from a great Bills game, all these listeners. And uh, suddenly my wife calls and she says, this is what happened. I'll meet you in Rochester. We'll take it from there. So my boss goes into boss mode and he says, all right, here's what we have to do. When we get back to Rochester, we have to set up a news conference. You're going to do it. And, and, you know, I haven't shaved. I'm still buzzed from the night before. And so I did this little news conference. And again, all these TV people that I've worked with are at the station. And, and I'm going through all these you know, things about how great Bill Coffee was. But he was, yeah, he was a special guy. I mean, quick-witted, uh, passionate about country music, passionate to the point where if he heard a song, you know the song ride a, uh, Save a Horse, Ride a Cowboy by Big and Rich? We played that when it first came out, and he said, this song is going to ruin country music. He said, this is not country. He was dead set against that, that type of music, which, of course, is what country music is now. So Bill Coffey passes away. We, uh, we have a concert for him in his honor. We name the studio after him. There's a big plaque outside the studio. And I'm not kidding when I say that uh, when I was at the B, Terry Clifford, Jeremy Newman, the, the guy who took his place, and I would think about Bill for a minute or so every single morning, every morning. He was fresh in our minds. Uh, I had never had that happen to me before, where, where the, the morning show host passes away. So Terry Clifford asked me, she said, because back then I was kind of doing the rounds on all four of our stations. I would do news on the buzz, and, uh, you know, and I would spend about 20 minutes every half hour in the beat. She said, would you be willing to become my co-host? And uh, everyone went for that idea, so that was my full-time move into country radio. And becoming a full-time morning host. Yeah, yeah, full-time, 3.15 in the morning. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, we moved Jeremy Newman into the show, and we became uh, a show that I can proudly say won the uh, New York State Broadcasters Award twice for Best Morning Show in New York. And continuing the tradition of having somebody working remotely, too, with Newman. Yeah, he worked out of Houston for a while. Uh, but now, I guess it was probably six or seven, maybe eight years ago, they kind of said, you know, you got to move up here. And he did. And um, so he's pretty much ensconced in the Rochester market now. So as you settled in and, and you had been doing this for a while and this, this became your thing, how do you know then at that point, okay, it's time to start thinking about, about moving on? Well, I would have never thought about it. I would have just pushed onward. I'm a creature of habit. We all are. But my wife is more in tune with me than I am. And she would remind me all the time, you know, you don't look it, you don't act it, you don't live it, you don't feel it, but you are up into your 60s. And at some point, you're going to have to face that reality. And I would fight it off. It's, ah, you know, I don't, I don't feel like a 60-year-old man. I'm 70 now. I still don't feel like a 70-year-old man. But I did say to them at the station, I said, you know, I think I, have one, I think I have one more year in me when I signed a contract. And they took that literally, that I only wanted one more year. And last March, I think it was, they said, well, this is going to be it. And here's what we're going to do. Uh, go out on your own terms. And so I won't say I was pushed into retirement, but I was, it, my wife was the one who made me see that it's time. You know, and, and, and I don't miss doing it. Like I said before, I just miss the hours. I don't miss the hours. 
it's at a time, too, where, I mean, a lot of people who have been doing this for, for a lot of years aren't getting that choice. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, the, the business has changed so much in terms of uh, what they call voice tracking, where they, I mean, they do that at my station. There is nobody live on any of our radio stations after morning drive. You know, the, the middays, Dave Kane is live on CMF, but on the B, uh, Terry Clifford is what they're calling voice tracking. She's taping her show. On PXY and The Buzz, they farm in announcers from other markets where we have stations. And someone from, I believe, Indianapolis does the midday show on The Buzz. He will send in his voice tracks. takes about an hour to do a four-hour show. And all that involves is just you know, looking online and becoming hip to what's going on in Rochester, New York. And that's the same thing on PXY. So, and that's the trend. It's really the trend to... Uh, to find ways to save money on talent, especially. But, you know, I mean, it's happening other ways as well. You know, I see a day where, and I was never into sales, but I see a day where advertisers will just go online and buy commercials. You know, there'll be no more salespeople. It, it's, I understand what's going on, uh, but it's very, very sad. It's not like it used to be. And you wonder for the kids who grew up, you know, I remember growing up as a kid before you were even a PXY, wanted to go down and I wanted to visit the station and I wanted to meet Scott and Diane and see where my, where my favorite radio personalities were coming from. And what do you do now? You go down, there's nobody there. And that's the weirdest thing. You know, you try to, you try to explain to a bunch of Cub Scouts who are in there what's going on and they, they, how come there's no one in there? And, you know, so I would bring them into the studio and watch how the equipment works and how they plug in the little voice track mentions. And just say, you know, it's, look at this, how modern it is. But they have no frame of reference, really. They don't know, you know, they don't know that it used to be one, one ownership, one station, with a zillion people wandering around doing all sorts of things. It's, it's different. I don't discourage kids from doing it. And I think kids today realize that it's not what it used to be. They have no concept of what it used to be. They just know that they want to do it in today's reality. And... Uh, yeah, go ahead. I mean, that just happened with a young woman on, uh, on PXY, woman who just got the gig, is named Breezy. And, gosh, six months ago, she was a promotions assistant, you know, the person who goes out to the mall and hangs banners. The announcer comes in and says, hey, we're out here, spin the wheel, win prizes. She was a promotions assistant, and they had a situation there where suddenly they had an opening, and uh, she applied for it. She said, let me give it a shot, and she got the gig. And I'm so happy for her. You know, she, she got the gig going from the most menial job. Now she's a co-host on 98PXY. So it can happen. And she knew what she was up against, but she was persistent. She had, you know, her drive just amazed me. And I remember she, uh, she asked me, hey, will you listen to my air check? What do I do right? What do I do wrong? And I gave her a little bit of advice. And I'm not going to say because of that she got the gig, but she was willing to listen and willing to learn, and uh, there she is now. She's going to be a star. It's a happy note to end on, at least. Yeah. Uh, what about you now? What's 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 the what is the best part of Scott Feibusch's day? There's still a magic to me in getting behind the microphone and talking. You know, having that that sort of mass audience and realizing, okay, there are ten thousand people driving into town on four ninety depending on me to tell them what's going on. And you know that feeling. I, I do. You know, the best part, the best part about what I did was uh, 
and you'd see it especially now that the newspaper can't really keep up with what's most current. Often you pick up the newspaper and they've missed the big story because the paper went to bed like at 10 o'clock even before that. The best part for me would be uh, knowing that there's something that happened in the news that people who were listening didn't know it happened. You know, the key is, and I tell kids today, you're not talking to 20,000, 50, you're talking to one person, that one person in the car. So I never used the word everybody. I never said, uh, I never referred to Rochester as a group. I, would have, I must have said the word you, you, your, a million times in my life. I mean, that one-on-one contact with that person in the car on the way in, knowing you have them hooked. I know they're jumping around a little bit, but that was the best part, knowing that I was involved in their mindset in the morning. A feeling we haven't heard the last of you doing that in some form or another. Well, you know, I'm still doing some commercials for uh, a couple of clients in town, so I am still on in the morning. People say, hey, I still hear you, so that's good. Uh, You know, I don't know if... I have a feeling there will be chances. I am not sure I'm going to jump on those chances because I'm still kind of new at this retirement thing. Talk to me in the dead of winter, you know, in, in, in February or March when I've been holed up in the house for the last three months and my wife is saying things like, don't you have some place to go, <laughs> you know? But right now I'm just enjoying getting up what I want, not having to think about, you know, Sunday nights are the best for me because... There was this thing called show prep that you have to do. We'd have to devote two hours every night to what's going to happen tomorrow. And Sundays weren't a weekend day for me because about 4 o'clock I knew I'd be going upstairs, getting on the computer, and having to spend two hours thinking about Monday morning. So Sundays are the best. Uh, it, it's, it's, been, it's been great. And, you know, I just hope it can continue for a while. And again, my thanks to Steve Hausman for taking the time to sit down with us on the Top of the Tower podcast. Uh, If there are broadcasters you're interested in hearing about on the podcast, or maybe you're one of them, uh, let me know. Drop me a line at scott at fibush.com. We are always looking for interesting people to talk to and highlight their experiences uh, here in this crazy business that we call broadcasting. Well, that'll do it for this week on the Top of the Tower podcast. Keep an eye out. We're going to have the new 2020 Tower Site calendars. Those are uh, just about back from the printer. Those will be shipping very soon. And lots more exciting developments, too, over at fibush.com. Don't miss our weekly Tower Site of the Week installments. And, of course, Northeast Radio Watch. There for you every Monday for over 25 years now. The Top of the Tower podcast is brought to you by Yellow Tech. For broadcasters, podcasters, and content creators, Yellow Tech offers solutions for clean, efficient studios with the Mika mic arms and monitor supports. Clear audio from Yellow Tech's IXM recording microphone, it's what you're listening to right now, and USB sound cards, along with its compact mixer, the Intellimix. To learn more, go to yellowtech.com. And from testing. Well, that'll do it for this top of this week on the podcast. Tower past key out. We're keeping eye. Going to have a new 20, the 2020 Tower Site calendars. Those are uh, just about back from the printer. The shipping. Those will be very soon. Lots more and more exciting developments too over at fibush.com. Don't miss our weekly Tower Site of the Week. And 